This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Weekends with Walshy starts now. Yes, indeed it does. And hello and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. We call it Weekends with Walshy. Thank you for joining us. My name is Peter Gowers. Let's get over to the heart of the NT Independent online newspaper now. Have a chat with my special guest, the editor, Mr. Chris Walsh. Walshy, how are you, mate? Hey, I'm good, Pete. Good to see you again. Good to see you too, mate. You had a good week? Uh, yeah, we had a week. <laughs> no, I'm good it was, but... Uh, I said a yeah. good week, not a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of stuff happening anyway. Yeah. Hey. Keeping us busy. Keeping us busy. That's for sure. Well, let's jump straight in because there's lots to talk about on this episode, as I say, each and every week. And uh, as we bring in the 180th episode of Weekends with Walshy slash Weekends with Woody, let's kick it off. Story number one this week, Chris, um, Matt Wright back in the news again with he and his helicopter company facing fresh charges for reckless conduct. Yeah, that's right, Pete. So that happened uh, this afternoon here now, uh, or uh, late this morning, I think it was. Um, anyway, yeah, look, uh, NT WorkSafe now lodging uh, additional charges. We know that uh, Matt Wright's already facing that uh, perverting the course of justice charge that the mm. NT police brought and a, and, a, and a few other charges, too, that have been kind of laid over until that first one's addressed, and those those will be brought back up again, too, we understand. But uh, what happened today now are these fresh charges being laid by NT WorkSafe for allegedly interfering with a helicopter's internal meters and falsifying flight records is what's alleged that Wright and his company did Hellybrook. Uh, and of course, that's connection to the helicopter that was involved in the crash that killed Chris Willow Wilson back in February 2022. So, mm. not two years ago now that this incident happened. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's getting pretty serious here. And there's a lot of stuff that's, um, going on here now. Uh, yeah. These, these, these new charges. Uh, facing two counts, his company Hellybrook and Wright himself are facing two counts of, quote, reckless conduct under the Work Health and Safety Act for failing in its duties to operate safe aircraft. Uh, so this was the quote from NT WorkSafe in their statement today. They said, while the exact cause of the helicopter crash has not been determined by any regulatory agency, and there is insufficient evidence to establish a prima facie case to lay charges in relation to the crash at this point in time. NT WorkSafe is, NT WorkSafe's investigation has found sufficient evidence to allege Hellybrook Proprietary Limited and Mr. Wright engaged in conduct intended to falsify the actual number of flight hours accrued by the aircraft and the Hellybrook fleet over an extended period of time. Now, they went on to say that uh, the, these actions taken by Wright and Hellybrook involved interfering with the Robinson R-44's internal Hobbs meter. Now, that's what records how many hours an aircraft is in use and that they uh, did not accurately record flight times in the helicopter's maintenance records, which they said is, quote, a key document to the safe operation of an aircraft. Uh, NT WorkSafe alleges this conduct would have impacted the regular inspection and replacement of the aircraft's life-limited components that may have been critical to the airworthiness of the aircraft, therefore placing at risk 
the health and safety of the pilots and passengers each time aircraft from the Hellebrook fleet was used, WorkSafe mm-hmm. said. Yeah, it's the classic uh, secondhand car dealer dodge they used to do years ago, pre-digital meters. They used to say, uh, Roll yeah, it back. yeah, just give it a haircut so it's done extra, you know, it's done 25,000 less kilometers than it actually has done. Yeah, yeah. And, and look for this with NT WorkSafe. I mean, he, he's looking at some very serious penalties here. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, yeah, there, there's a lot of issues here. But I'll turn it. Um, what was it? Wright is facing now five years jail for this. Uh, for that. And they, yeah, and a $1.2 million fine or both. Wow. They said if found guilty of the two reckless conduct charges, Hellebrooks would face a maximum $6 million fine for failing its duties if found guilty. Yeah. It's his company. Um, so the WorkSafe has also laid alternative charges if those ones failed to get up, uh, of failing to comply with health and safety duties. Uh, yeah, just in case, I guess uh, those charges don't get up, they have these alternative charges that will still. A couple of backups. Yeah, some issues. So they, clearly they've been working on this for a long time. So the matter is listed now for mention in the Darwin local court on February 27th. We remember that um, back in December, Pete, right? Remember the the circus came to town, the media circus, when uh, Wright showed up for uh, a hearing at the local court where he was committed to stand trial in the Supreme Court on on one charge of perverting the course of justice, uh, again, in relation to the fatal helicopter crash that killed the Chris Wilson, while two others charged in connection to the crash, including a former cop and a helicopter pilot, pleaded guilty to destroying evidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, of course, uh, the other guy. No, wait, uh, sorry, before I get into that, the, what I was talking about earlier, Wright's also facing further charges, including fabricating evidence, unlawful entry, making a false declaration, and menacing or intimidating Sebastian Robinson. Now, he was the pilot who was flying the helicopter at the time of the crash. Yep. So those charges are kind of on hold here, but the you know he'll be answering to those later on. Uh, and as we know, Robinson was severely injured during that crash. Uh, yeah, the, and those charges have been adjourned until June. So June, those will be back up again. Now, meanwhile, <clears throat> we say, as uh, Wright likes to say, he's denied. Uh, all allegations against him. We can assume that he'll fight these work safe charges as well. Yeah. Um, now it was helicopter pilot, Michael Burbage, who uh, pleaded guilty to one count of destroying evidence back in December that related to the crash. Uh, the details of the agreed facts were suppressed by the courts at that time. Three other charges against Burbage were withdrawn, including attempting to pervert the course of justice, fabricating evidence and making a false declaration. And then the other a uh, guy involved here was a former anti-police officer, Neil Mellon, also pleaded guilty to destroying evidence in December. Uh, now, that was that evidence he destroyed that was reported in the media that that was the destruction of a mobile phone, which he destroyed on the day of the crash. Mm. Two other charges were dropped. Uh, yeah, so we'll see. Now, it's interesting, like they're saying, that no regulatory body has... Uh, work safe as saying, you know, there's not enough to determine what exactly caused the crash. And yep. it's interesting that they say that and that there's not enough to charge him with, you know, the crash itself. And so, but they're going to charge him with these. Uh, and I don't know how they worded that, trying to make it similar. It's not related, but I mean, clearly it is. It's the same helicopter that was crashed. Yeah. So, yeah, so th- that's where they're going with this right now. Things will probably always change. But we know back in November, remember the ATSB had put yes. out this. Uh, report but and they said you know most likely 
the crash it caused because it ran out of fuel midair, causing the engine to stop. Uh, but maintenance non-compliance was also increasing risk levels for much of the company's flying and engine defects likely affected the chopper's fuel consumption. Uh, and that was a bit controversial at the time because I don't think people are ready to buy that or buy that at no. all. And there were some other investigations going on, right? So the, the NT police at the time, right, like the day after that report came out, they said they put out a statement saying, hey, just to remind everybody, uh, that we have a full investigation file on the crash, that which includes evidence of maintenance and fuel records, which is what we've now seen the charges. So WorkSafe was looking into that as well. Yeah. Uh, they, the police said they also had expert opinions concerning the fuel system and airworthiness of the aircraft. So sounding like they're going to make an issue of that. Uh, and toxicology analysis of individuals involved in the crash. Look, look. Pete, there's so many, like this guy, right, has more people investigating him than Donald Trump at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, not, and not the full 91 charges yet. <laughs> yeah, but I, it just seems to keep happening here. Like, there are so many bodies still looking at all of yeah. this, and the anti-police clearly have been doing something, and they've got a whole lot of things. We've now got WorkSafe, you know, ITSB, CSSA, you know, all these <laughs> other. C CSI Miami. <laughs> everybody's looking at this and uh you never know when more charges here are going to be laid and um mm -hmm. yeah you want to see this kind of get resolved it looked like it was heading there but now more charges and and you know he'll front court to this i guess maybe just as lawyers will but it'll be a big circus the end of the month now when these new fresh charges of reckless conduct are, are brought before the courts and he'll have to answer to those then but uh yeah it seems the soap opera is going to keep going for a little while Feels like it. Chris, a couple of questions which you may not be able to tell me the answers to and or it may not be appropriate to answer the second question, so just tell me that when I ask it. First question, for uh, so this runs separately to the other um, charge that's been laid thus far, and I'm not, uh, I'm not presuming anything. I'm just asking a question, so I'm not saying anybody is guilty or not guilty, but... If found guilty, given that they're two completely separate uh, areas where he's been charged, mm -hmm. would would sentencing be something that runs concurrently, or would they operate separately? Yeah, good good question. P. You would think that there'd be an application in the court that you know whatever might benefit him. Um, yeah, right. If if he's found guilty, but again, we're, we're not saying that. You know, it's, it that's right. Yeah, still we don't has know. to go through. Yeah. Uh, the core processes, and I'm sure he's got a, a, a strong legal team there that will be putting forward a good defense for him. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not entirely sure, but it's um, it'll be something. I mean, he's facing a lot of serious, serious yeah. charges here and breaking and enter and the menacing people and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, perverting the course of justice. And now this reckless conduct, it's um, it's not looking good, that's for sure. And uh, definitely, definitely serious charges. And the prickly one. Um, are we to assume that the two gentlemen who have already pled guilty to certain things, um, and as far as what we've been led to believe are part of a group of uh, blokes who've known each other for quite a long time, mm. are we to assume that their reason for doing that is to do with the fact that they're then going to be assisting on the prosecution side of things? Yeah, that might be how some people would take that. You know, when they when they're 
pleading out to one charge and having other charges dropped. And then, yeah. you, you know, you're looking at the court suppressing uh, the details of what's in there. And that makes you think that that's done for a reason that that's going to come up at the trial. Yeah. Uh, that'll be in the Supreme court now at some point. Um, so yeah, well, I guess we'll just have to watch the soap opera unfold, but, um, mm. all kinds of stuff. And, you know, Kristen Shorten at uh, the Australian has been writing some pretty good stuff too, where she's got emails of what was going on and who was involved locally on that. I was reading a story last week, which involves, um, how different people knew each other on different boards here and the exemptions mm. that were made. Remember that had come up in the ATSB, oh, yeah. the, the exemption to let the sling happen that, that, that yeah, Chris yeah. Wilson was in that was dangling yeah. underneath and that it shouldn't have happened. Uh, that shouldn't have been allowed. They were looking to outlaw that and ban it. Somehow mm. these guys got grandfathered in or were given an extension of a year and then this incident happens. And so mm. she had a lot of good material into that, um, which anyone can read, I guess, on the Australian. But it's, um, yeah, man, it's an interesting case. And a lot of people uh, have a stake in it, it appears now, and, and still do. So as mm. that unfolds, it'll be more and more drama for sure. And ultimately, I guess, I'm just assuming that the um, grandstand at Fanny Bay Racecourse is to blame for all of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I Yeah. Well, this is just a whole other little thing, of, uh, some se segment of society and some drama going on there. Once you so, mentioned yeah. boards, that's where I went straight to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no one, for, no one from there directly implicated yeah. yet, but uh, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> That was a joke, and as I said before, we're not assuming guilt, we're not assuming no. innocence, we know nothing at this stage, but I just thought those yeah. questions were of interest. All right, yeah, look, sure. let's let's move to the next story, Chris, and uh, another story that's of interest is uh, the uh, financial gifts to political parties uh, has been revealed ahead of the 2024 election, Chris. Well, we And we think that this is very important, and I think a lot of Territorians do now, especially given the governments that we've had for the better part of the last decade, well, over a decade, and yep. <laughs> with integrity issues, all of them, and I think we could probably go back further. <laughs> so, you know, anytime that um, the transparency measures are are brought in and, in fact, uh, enforced and need to be reported i mean this is good for our democracy and um and of course we can't get that right pete <laughs> when you know it here in clown town no. something's got to go wrong <laughs> but uh you know the intent of this was that um the public gets to see uh exactly who's funding uh the political parties and where maybe their their real interests lie and 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 so that they can make an informed decision at the ballot box and August 24th, and we think that's important that people do know, you know, yeah, where they're getting funding and, and if it is in their end, what, what, what their interests are and all of this. And I don't know why it's not the public's interest, but you just get the feeling for the past 12 years here that uh, the public's interest has kind of been put at the bottom of uh, other interests. Um, so, yeah, so a couple of um, interesting surprises yeah. here, and I think it's probably best to start with Labour and then we'll get into the mess that is the country Liberal Party. But Labour, though, had some issues here now. <laughs> They've reported, and look, like I, the other thing about this, and the more that I've talked to people, like it is kind of a snapshot of what's going on. Um, yeah, how accurate all of it is. Anyway, it gives us yeah. a general idea. Let's say that. So, 
At this point, uh, Territory Labor's reported that they've received, uh, I think it was over $70,000, not ten, tens of thousands of dollars in financial gifts. Uh, the bulk of that being made up from major gas companies, local developers, and mining companies ahead of the 2024 NT general election. Now, these new disclosures released by the NT Electoral Commission uh, were labeled kind of financial gifts uh, received. It's the first part, essentially, of the disclosures for the election period. And this is the period covering July 1st last year to December 31st. So those six months are considered, I guess, by the NTEC to be part of uh, mm. lead up to the election and, and where the money's coming from. So what we know now from, from Labor's uh, disclosures is that Tamburin Resources, their good mates over at Tamburin, have, uh, were the largest single oh, donor. Yes. Yeah, can know that name. Six thousand dollars to the party. Uh, now, of course, we know Tamburin has the interest in the Beetaloo Basin, uh, looking to frack down there. And of course, it got a little too cozy and uncomfortable for I think everybody when we revealed late last year that the former Chief Minister Natasha Files' chief of staff that his company was the registered lobbyist for Tamburin. Uh, yeah, a little too close in there, and I think you know all the controversy that came after that with the the idea that the that the that the lobbyists were now on the anti-government payroll uh was chilling to our democracy and yet and now here we see that the largest single donor to the party was mm -hmm. tambourine resources and they're trying to get the, the official green light i mean they've already really been given the green light to frack the beetaloo and so they're down there doing their exploration works and saying like by, by the end of this year they can have that producing. So um, I don't think, uh, yeah, I, I don't think if anybody thought that the government was going to say, nah, 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 it's not going to happen. Uh, that's shattered now. And the, the fact, it's just always this bad look when the, those companies that are so dependent on government decisions are now seen giving large donations to the party in power. Uh, anyway, that's what it's become now. No doubt. Critical Minerals Company, Tivin, or Tivin uh, which has interest in the government's proposed middle arm industrial precinct, was also one of the top contributors, giving the party $3,500. Era Fura Rare Earths gave Labor $4,500, while a company called AKJ Services, this is an indigenous-owned construction company, we went up and looked it up, uh, they gave the party a $5,000 financial gift. Uh, Paspali Perling, Randazzo Properties, and Fuel Tech out of Melbourne all contributed $2,500 each. Another $2,500 gift was reported by a company called NT House, Proprietary Limited. Now, we didn't know what that was. Still not sure exactly what that means, but, and, yeah. and we did Rings do an asset bell. record search. Yeah, owned by Nicholas Paspali. Yeah. So the Paspali's getting in on a couple of different donations. That's that's one of the buildings in the city, isn't it? In T House. Well, yeah, like a government building or something, right? I think that's the name. One of the buildings in the city, Chris. <laughs> yeah, no, and I well, I thought it was the one where what's there, yeah. the, uh, developing the north or whatever's there. But uh, it's a government thing. I thought anyway. Yeah, look, uh, Nicholas oh, yeah, yeah. set up a company called that, and he's uh, getting some money, giving some money, and getting a, a shiplift in return. I mean, we, we could probably just have a look and go through what everybody's getting out of it. 
is uh, because I mean, that, look, that's still ridiculous in anyone's mind in the past, any type of business case, which I'm not sure was ever done on that ship lift project, but to then turn around and cost us the hundreds of millions it's going to cost us. And then guess what? We just let Pest Valley come in and operate it for profit. For them, we've just bought them a ship lift and given them the keys. I, I, I do not understand that. That's never been explained properly to anyone's satisfaction. So we've now got uh, yeah, some other Just for anyone here. hard of hearing, that's ship, that's ship with a P, Chris is saying there. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's kind of my take on it all anyway, too, if you hear it the other way. Uh, yeah, that's ship with a P. <laughs> um, yeah, look, some other some other fun-loving characters involved here, some, some people who... Uh, just enemies in the public eye, I think, people who don't have the public interest at heart. Anyway, uh, Michael Gunner, not him, disgraced former chief of staff, Alf Leonardi, also contributed $2,600 to the effort. The NT Independent understands Leonardi's actively campaigning for labor and collecting donations for the party. Now, that much we do know and can confirm. He's actively door-knocking for Mark Monaghan and following wow. him. I don't know what Monaghan's saying. Like, Monaghan's still got this cloud of, of letting his mates charge taxpayers for their holidays and not doing anything about it. And now he thinks, you know, what's going to make me look good if I go door to door with Elf Leonardi, the guy who was mixed up in the whole grandstand scandal and was seen taking donations and making things and then writing the business case or whatever he wrote for them. And then for the turf club and then the grandstand happens all while he's Michael Gunner's chief of staff. That is just so dirty. I don't know why uh, the party would want him around and want him in a role like that. Like I was, I was telling you the other day, Pete. Like, yeah, like I, I, I don't know how that phone call would go when the phone rings and it's Elf Leonardi. You're a local businessman, and he says, "Hey, I just hope we can count on you for fifty for a cool fifty k this year again, same as last year, and we'll just put you down. And I'll swing by with the brown paper bag, and I'll take that for you." And like, you got to think that whoever he's calling would be like, Elf, I don't want to be seen with you. I don't want to be giving you money. I'm going to end up in an ICAC report. I'm going to end up somewhere in the media being exposed for this. Like, it, it, he, the reputation is ruined there. I just do not understand uh, how anyone in, in the party thinks this is a good idea. I mean, I guess it's like Gunner putting Sean Draps in charge of implementing the ICAC's recommendations when Draps was found to have acted inappropriately in the whole thing and was involved. And then I put him in. This is just classic labor here. Uh I, I don't know what to make of this, but it's just ridiculous. When I heard about this, Chris, I thought, and this is, again, not casting aspersions on anyone, but if you're collecting uh, political donations on behalf of a party, there'd have to be some sort of auditing involved with that too, wouldn't there? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, look, I yeah, I mean, he's going to have to report all this stuff by the rules, but, you know, we don't know what else happens. You know, we don't know how everything goes down here. But, yeah, I mean, there are rules in place that they are obligated to adhere to and then they don't do that and we'll get into that in a minute about what happens when parties don't do that um because that's a little chilling now too after what we reported late today but um mm -hmm. yeah i just you know it's just and and you know he's door knocking with monahan and, and i don't know why he wants i mean is lawler gonna bring gunner back to campaign during this i mean you know the, the the whole other thing here, and and, and Shane Stone mentioned it on um, on the radio today on Mixed. But uh, you know this is still with Labor Party that used taxpayer money. The last election campaign didn't disclose that to anyone. Um, 
you know, it was up to us to find it. They're under investigation by the ICAC still. Uh, we don't have any update for a yet beat on that, but, uh, but this is pretty serious stuff. And, and that's a whole other angle that hasn't been explored or anything that we had done yet is did they, did they report that to the NTEC as, as, you know, financial income during the campaign period, the 40K that they took, that they made taxpayers pay? Uh, to fly around and then Gunner flew around to those remote communities, as we know, on, a, on polling days and um, campaign, clearly. Uh, and the ICAC's still looking at that. But yeah, these, these kind of warts go on and the systems are in place to protect, but it still happens anyway, it seems. <laughs> so um, yeah, so look, we went through all of this. The other thing that I'll mention before we get into the CLP, the NT Greens. Now, Labor had reported something um Raising somewhere around $73,159 through 123 donors for the last six months of 2023. Uh, the NT Greens reported raising 71000 in total financial gifts from 87 donors, they said. With, but the majority of that was, of course, made up of a $55,000 gift from the Australian Greens. So, like, the federal branch kicked in. Um, but yeah, I think people will be surprised to know that, uh, that the Greens had raised just about as much money as Labor had in the six months. So uh, do we expect more from the Greens at this election? We've been expecting <laughs> a lot more from the Greens for a while, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wonder, you know, like you, you get into that, that idea that, um, that, uh, you know, the Teal Independence League people had said that, that, that environmentally conscience, maybe independence, maybe greens, maybe the greens can make breakthroughs in those kind of inner city suburbs. Uh, the the, uh, the electorates there, like um, Nightcliff was one, Fanny Bay, you know, some of those things could gains be made in there. I, I don't know. Uh, but it looks like the greens are going to put in an effort here, at least if this is anything to gauge that by, and they've raised a substantial amount of money. Uh, now, um, yeah, the, the, the other thing that was weird in all of this when we first looked at that on Monday when it was released was that the, C, the CLP did not report any financial gifts, but it was unclear in the uh, disclosures exactly why. And we went to them and the, the, the party executive and they didn't respond to our questions. Uh, now, all parties were obligated to report the financial gifts by January 30th. <laughs> we had asked uh, the, the CLP executive if they did not report any financial gifts due to not receiving any in the reporting period. Based on some of the conversations that we've had, Chris, it wouldn't surprise me if they hadn't received anything. <laughs> but as a result of this situation, I've decided I'm going to keep an own goal score for the two main political parties from here on in. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Yeah, because they kind of caused themselves some issues here this week, the CLP, with that. So, Chris, let's turn our focus now to the CLP and talk about their long history of failing to disclose political donations, seemingly with no consequences, Chris, uh, yeah. as excuses are made for this latest breach. Sorry to cut you off. <laughs> no work, Pete. Yeah, look, that that was the, the troubling part of all of this from that end. I mean, we know who, who's given money to Labor, they're not keeping it a secret. I mean, they, they know they've told us all what their plans are, and here's who's paying them. But yet the CLP uh, didn't report, and so you know we went to them, and they didn't respond to us, and we went to them again, and they didn't respond to us. So we went to the electoral commissioner, uh, Ian Loganathan, and we said, you know, what happened here with the CLP? Did they did they not raise any money, or or what happened? And he said, no, they they just completely breached the electoral act. 
by failing to disclose and and that there were fines now that like there's a penalties here of up to $176,000 for failing to disclose these donations and these financial mm. gifts as we're calling them now. So um we said okay, wow, well, we got to do a story about this and then we weren't hearing from the CLP executive, either Shane Stone, the president or anyone else, and we we emailed them over a couple of days so we ran the story. And, uh, yeah, they've breached Section 215 of the Act. Uh, now, yeah, look, part of that exists to ensure, I mean, the Act does, the parties comply with the requirement to inform the public about the source of funding for political, act political activities so they can make informed decisions on Election Day. Uh, Ian Logan, Nathan, the Commissioner, said, in the Northern Territory, political parties and candidates operate without public funding relying solely on donations to finance their campaigns. To maintain transparency and prevent undue influence, legislation has been implemented establishing financial disclosure requirements. This ensures that the funding sources of political activities are made accessible to the public, allowing them to make informed votes. Mm -hmm. The CLP is apparently just, you know, thumbed its nose at, at this very important piece of legislation, the act here that that uh, is fundamental to our democracy here and how it works. And so I, I just I, I just couldn't believe that they hadn't reported it and then said nothing about it. So yeah. we um you know we we yeah I mean we we're trying to get some stuff here. We went through all the details here, the ins and outs that we've already talked about. Uh and, and now what um Ian said was that well, we wrote here that uh, Mr. Loganathan appears to be taking the ICAC's approach to dealing with mismanagement and has indicated the CLP, along with the Shooters and Fishers Party, NT, will be given a formal warning for breaking the law and not publicly disclosing their finances. <laughs> now, this is this is what I'm saying. That, that Well, look, anyway, Ian said this is the first financial disclosure return for the 2024 election. Parties candidates that failed to submit a return will be issued a formal warning. This is after the, you know, the reminders, the polite reminders that the deadline's January 30th and the CLP just didn't get it in. Mm. Uh, now, they did not respond to us about this, uh, but Ian said the party claimed to him that it had failed to properly report the disclosures because it had changed accountants. However, that could not be confirmed by the party. It's also unclear if that's a, quote, reasonable excuse for the failure to disclose by the reporting deadline. Like, that, that's in the act. If they do it without a, quote, unquote, reasonable excuse yeah. or with an unreasonable excuse, that they should be fined. And he's saying, and I don't agree with him, he's saying, and this was the other day, and we kind of got into that, but he's saying, well, we're going to take the Michael Rich's approach. I mean, he didn't say that, <laughs> but he said, but that's what it essentially is, is uh, we'll just educate and it's like, no, the CLP have been around <laughs> from the beginning of time in the Northern Territory. They know what they're doing. There are people involved in that party who've been there for many years. That this isn't, they just didn't start this up. Now it's like that they had, they know what, what their obligations are and they just failed to meet them. So I went back and I started looking into things because we ran this story and a couple hours later, the NT News ran a story and they had spoken to Tony Skelling, who's the, uh, treasurer. Now, Tony's been around a long time. I know Tony. I know he was treasurer years ago. He took over for Graham Lewis right. when Graham Lewis was the treasurer while he was also running his little private enterprise called Foundation 51. <laughs> right. So, so, but Tony's saying in this thing to the NT News, he's saying, ah, oh, well, you know, uh, 
we're all just volunteers around here. And yeah, I, you know, I got busy with my business and doing things and I just didn't get around to it. I'm thinking, well, I don't know. You're telling the commissioner that it's because you got new accountants. Now you're telling the NT news and the public that it's because you're a volunteer and you didn't have time. And then he complained about how onerous the whole process was and what he had to go through. And how many donations feeling, did they get? Yeah. Nobody's feeling any sympathy there, Tony, for you on this one. Sorry. But, uh, so I'm thinking, okay, something's not adding up here. So we went back to him, and now I know Tony's the treasurer again. Now, last time I saw Tony was probably a couple of years ago at Hibiscus Shops or something, and then we chatted <laughs> briefly, and he said, that's it, I'm out, I'm not involved, I'm not the treasurer of the party anymore. Okay. So, you know, I didn't think anything. Then I saw that, so I sent questions back to them, and I said, all right, we're going to do another story because these, these excuses are just kind of very lame. And no one's buying this stuff. And then when you go back and look, Pete, the, the, look, last year they did the same thing. They were six, well, they were six months late with their disclosures. And they said, oh, well, you know, the party executive is changing. And so, you know, it's very difficult for us to get it in on time. Oh, okay. Well, that might be one thing then. But then you look back in 2021. Now, this was an audit by BDO, an independent audit that the NT Electoral Commission had done into whether or not parties were meeting their obligations to report and disclose. And what that found was that, that the party should be pursued, the CLP should be pursued for the <laughs> deliberately breaking disclosure laws. Wow. And nothing had happened back then, right? And then you get into 21, 22, and it was 23 where they were six months late again. And now we've got now where they're late again in an election year on their disclosures and who's given the money like this. At what point do you say this is like, this is a chronic condition now. This isn't just yeah. a, a thing. So, you know, so we sent some questions back to the CLP. We sent some questions back to Ian Loganathan and um, we, we ran this story late today now. And, and, and this is all true. And then Jesus, I had to go some sort of, you know, flashback here to 2015 when foundation 51 was all over the news and I was writing the news. I was at the NT news at the time. And we, we had emails that showed that like party members knew about this, what was being alleged as a slush fund where, you know, business people or, or companies, developers mostly were, were kicking in this money to this private company that was then kind of funneling it back into the party. And Graham Lewis was running this and he was doing research and other things that would then make it back to the party. And none of that was being disclosed. Foundation 51 wasn't disclosing itself as a uh, an associated entity of the party, which it was legally obligated to do. Now, this this stuff, you know, it got so bad that um, that investigation was launched. Uh, the police were involved. The police said that there was a reasonable chance of conviction, that there it was apparent or perceived that there were actual laws being broken here now that went to the director of public prosecutions and nothing happened mm. uh the dpp said well it's not in the public interest and i remember at the time saying well i you actually have to explain to the public how you determine that because this <laughs> has garnered significant media attention uh it, it goes to our democracy here and the dpp just said no nah, it's not in the public interest that was Krushevsky. Uh, and he wouldn't explain. We still don't know um, what he was based on that. I guess it was that, uh, well, they had eventually filed as an associated entity. So they eventually disclosed their returns two years after the fact of what they were doing. 
But they did it. So, you know, what are we going to do about it? Like, it was unbelievable at the time. And you just had a very sick feeling even back then in 2015 that something's wrong with our democracy here. Mm. And uh, and now we see this going on, right? So we're looking back at that. We sent some questions. I talked to Tony Skelling, uh, and he's saying, you know, look, and I, and I laid it out for him. I said, in 23, you guys did this. Uh, in 21, you know, that audit found that you weren't disclosing things. There was like an $88,000 discrepancy between the receipts and what was reported to the NTEC, which, you know, that the auditors said pursue them for deliberately breaching law. I said, you know, how do you guys justify this stuff? Like, this isn't just an issue, a one-time thing. Oh, no, well, you know, and he said, well, the, uh, uh, you know, we're all volunteers. He said, um, every year the volunteers change. I've been filling whatever role is necessary. And we've had new people in it every year and they have to pick up the pieces. It's a volunteer organization. They don't get paid. They work as hard as they can. Well, but I said, look, you know, like Tony, like this, this is this organization, if not outright dysfunction. Yeah. For a political party that wants to govern and wants to be elected. (laughs) What the hell faith should any of us have in what the CLP is doing? How are you going to balance the books? (laughs) So, yeah, like that's it. Maybe the members got to get involved, right? Maybe Bill Yan, who's the anointed treasurer. Yeah, yeah. Get some volunteers around. Bill's got to get in. Yeah, Bill, go in there and manage it. You show us you balance the books with the party, yeah. and then we'll trust you as treasurer of the NT. That's right. Anyway, so Schelling conceded that the disorganization was bad for the party. And I think I said that, like, this is just bad for the party. Like, what? You can't get people to do this? Yeah. Um, he said, yeah, sure, it's bad for the party. It would be good to have the same people consistently there for three years, but that's how it is. He said, we don't have the reserves or the resources, and we don't have the money. Um, and then they said that it would, that it would, uh, that they would, they would get this done, that he needed to verify the numbers and he didn't get them late from the new accountant, you know, more excuses here, but that he would file them on Friday. Anyway, the, the, the thing that was funny today, I think for me was, um, Shane Stone showed up on mix to explain. Hmm. And things are getting bad when Shane Stone has the to sheriff show up on Mix. Right into town. Yeah, on his white horse. <laughs> he sees himself in the, the, the white knight here. And and you're gonna love this too. So anyway, so he, he comes on Mix and he says the failure to disclose was totally unacceptable. And that he quote read the riot act to those responsible. Of course, not him. He would never be responsible. <laughs> Um, but the party the bu- had nothing. The buck to- stops just below me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, Pete. It's so true with him. Anyway, uh, and he said, but the party had nothing to hide, and they would file the disclosures. He said, this is a function of the party that has changed its office bearers. Stone offered as a reason why the latest disclosures weren't filed on time. I came in as a new president last year. Tony Skelling went from general secretary to treasurer. There's been a glitch. There's been mm. a glitch. Very Unacceptable, cool. he said. I've told I've told him, Tony, we can't have this happening. Now he he's gone on and said, I'm not throwing Tony, I'm not getting rid of Tony. Tony's been a faithful servant to the CLP. But the whole time he's dumping on Tony Skelling on all of this. <laughs> anyway, he but he, the, the part that I picked up on was too when he said there's been a glitch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as though, well as though they've got some digital system not working. Yeah, like I, we're saying here, that glitch appears to be more of a long running malfunction <laughs> that they just don't seem to want to fix. Yeah. Now, 
Just needs like a I control said. alt delete, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I said, just last year the party was six months late filing the 2021-22 political donations. Claiming at the time that it was due to changes in the party's executive team. In 2021, the NTEC released that independent audit, uh, which found the perceived deliberate non-compliance with disclosures laws, including by the CLP, which had withheld receipts from the Electoral Commission, a variance of $88,346. Uh, the report determined the receipts reported to the NTEC were significantly understated and that the party's accountant could not produce a report to show it complied with the Electoral Act. The auditors recommended the NTEC pursue the political parties and candidates in relation to the perceived deliberate non-compliance issues. However, no action was taken against the CLP at the time. Mm. You know, we so we went to, to Ian. And yep. I, Send all these stories back to you. And I said, look, you know, at what point do you do something? Do you take action? Right. Like th this is getting ridiculous now. Like this is a long pattern of behavior. It's serial, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he says now, and I appreciate his honesty in this, Pete, but I got to say that it really, you know, getting back to that sick feeling I had in 2015 with Foundation 51 and, and what it meant for our democracy, I'm feeling that again. And I'm feeling that a lot worse now because of the ineffectiveness of the ICAC, the issues in the senior executive of police that we had seen under the Chalker administration, you know, everything that happened with Gunner and Files as chief minister and the lack of integrity in government. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, I don't know. Look, what, what Ian said was this, though. He said um, that the process to initiate penalties for failure to disclose. So if he wanted to go after the CLP for yeah. breaching the law, which they've done, uh, which could amount to $176,000 in fines, which I, I honestly think the party deserves at this point <laughs> for, for this. Um, yeah. He said that the, that the process to initiate would need to be prepared in a brief to the DPP, with the DPP then making the final determination on whether to proceed with taking action against the party for breaching the act. And what Ian said directly was this, as you may recall from the Foundation 51 investigation, the DPP opted not to prosecute that matter, despite the CLP submitting their returns over two years late. The DPP stated that it was not in the public interest to prosecute the matter as the forms had now been submitted. Right. So Foundation 51 was a high-profile matter that received significant media interest given this experience. It seems unlikely the DPP would choose to prosecute annual returns in a non-election year that are submitted late. The focus of the NTEC has been to educate and support parties to submit returns on time. What he's saying there, I appreciate his honesty. But that yeah. is not good enough. He's saying that, you know, he's tried to do this before. The DPP shut him down. He's not going to try again. But, the, like, Pete, this, this is so crazy in a sense, right? Like, it's that somebody mm -hmm. is guilty of a crime. They get charged with that crime. It gets dropped. They beat it somehow. And there's no prosecution for that crime. They then commit another crime, similar in nature, for going on for years. Yeah. And the idea is, well, we're just not even going to try this time. That's yeah. not acceptable. That's not acceptable. It's a weird one, isn't it? It seems like they don't place any importance on this particular activity, which is obviously required for so many reasons. Yeah, the party you mean doesn't, yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. 
Yeah, and I and I still don't understand why the DPP didn't at the time. Uh, like I yeah. think this goes to the fundamentals of our democracy here, and uh, they just didn't care. I mean, yeah, we said that they they had set up the slush fund, right? It was called that. There was evidence showing that the private company had contributed to the CLP's activities with cash and other things that had not been properly disclosed. Foundation 51 was later forced to disclose $700,000 in payments to the NTEC as an associated entity, including money received from major Darwin developers over many years. Uh, police had concluded, like I said, that the breaches of the Electoral Act uh, were, were there, were potential, but strong, and that there was a reasonable chance of conviction. However, the DPP did not pursue the matter and did not explain its full reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um the, the, yeah, uh, and, and now we're kind of reliving that. But then the party seems to be what bolstered by that. I mean, what happens in the in the interim is this, right? Well, well, maybe I should get to the end of this. But you know, Graham Lewis goes now. Graham Lewis was the treasurer of the party, right? And you know, I wrote Crocs in the cabinet, me and Ben. And at one point, I was having dinner with someone else, an elder in the CLP, and I said, "What what what is Graham Lewis still doing?" around like he's caused some issues here with this foundation 51 and the response from the party elder was because he has the keys to the bank oh right right like graham lewis was so important to the clp that they couldn't they weren't going to cut him adrift for the bad publicity that he had caused with whatever little scheme he was pulling with the slush fund alleged slush fund which i think we can just call a slush fund um but what had happened here now is that um, what Shane Stone said, which we thought was interesting too, was that, uh, uh, well, Skelling and Stone said the CLP had raised roughly $40,000 in the last six months of the year of the last reporting period compared to Labor's total of 73000 and the anti-green 71000 Stone said the largest donor to the CLP for the reporting period was himself. With a $6,800 contribution. The press. Yeah, the white knight, man, coming in again. <laughs> and if he needs to spread some money around, yeah. he'll do that. Oh, my God. Anyway, the hubris, right? Anyway, he says, this is a human failure, he told Mix. We have to be right on our game because I'm a stickler for this sort of stuff, and there's nothing to hide. Nothing, I tells you. And <laughs> he didn't say that that part. I added that. It felt like I was in character there. Yeah. Uh, but he said, there's nothing to hide. In fact, we've got the lowest donations of any political party. Well, well done, Shane. Uh, and I'm sure that all of the, the other money will come in when it needs to come in, and we just don't know if it'll be reported properly. He added the CLP, but this is what was interesting. He added that the CLP does not currently, quote, have a sophisticated fundraising arm, but the quote, we're in the process of rectifying that. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Now that, that, that sounds like we're getting back. They're going to go from unsophisticated to sophisticated. Yeah. Well, it was pretty sophisticated what Graham Lewis was pulling on everybody (laughs) until he was found out. And Mm -hmm. so to, to suggest that we currently don't have a sophisticated fundraising arm, but we're in the process of rectifying that. I mean, I, I don't know what to take with, with Stone sometimes in the bravada here and the whole, um, you know, making him sound, himself sound so important in the party. But uh, look, I, I think it was just an important story to show the uh, how what the history of it all here yes. is and how this party has consistently done this. And uh, they've never learned their lesson. And they, and they seem to just be doing it again, but walking into a new election where people are seriously considering voting for them. Yeah. 
Yep. Now, that's why I said before about the own goals, because I read this story and I thought, off the back of everything else we've said, off the back of any seemingly, uh, or the lack of any policies that we've heard about, that they need to start winning some games here. And I thought, my God, this is just another own goal for the aspiring future government to, to, to not even have the respect to submit these, or worse still, not know what they are or have their house in order. Yeah. That's a real indictment on what uh, we can expect from a government. Yeah, Pete, and I think that's what people, I think that was the general sentiment when the, when the story came out. And, yeah. um, and you know, the NT News followed us on it, and then um, at the left, and Shane Stone was kind of uh, out of joint over this, but uh, Territory Labor used the story on their Facebook page. Of course they did. an ad. You can't trust the CLP. Yeah, you, you know you can't trust the CLP, and it was that, and it was the it was the NT News headline, which I had to have a laugh at. That, like I think they would have got more credibility if they had used our story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where people yeah. would be like, "Oh well, the NT Independent actually they're not the the propaganda arm of the government, so if yeah. they're saying it, it must be true." Um, because I think they've given up on the NT News a long time ago, like real pe- real territories. But uh, the the thing that you know, Shane Stone had to rebut that and he had to go on the attack while he was on with katie on mix yeah this morning and he said uh, you know i see them doing this and saying oh you can't trust the clp he says well they're the party that stole forty thousand dollars taxpayer money during mm. the last election didn't disclose which is a fair point it is but, but the statement would have yeah. a lot more weight had they had their own house in order exactly exactly well yeah and look we're not suggesting that they've stolen public money because they don't no, have access to it because they don't have access to it. But the question then becomes what happens when they do have access to it? Yeah. You it know, just, will they be as bad as labor? And that's what got in everybody's head after this. That's just a big yeah. screw up on their part. It just looks untidy, Chris. That's how mm. it looks. I mean, they might be completely straight and legit, no questions asked, but it just looks untidy. Yeah. The, other, the other question I've got to ask you, Chris, and um, – I'll just ask it as it is. Have you looked into whether the DPP made any uh, donations to CLP? <laughs> I think that was the greatest one. And they probably should have disclosed that as a gift in kind, right? <laughs> well, I just... Emphasis in my head, on the kind part, that they didn't prosecute them. <laughs> yeah. In my head, I was thinking, no, they couldn't be so obvious as actually being the DPP, but they could have opened up a bank account as Dave P. Prosecutor or something. <laughs> Oh, they've considered this, I'm sure, Pete. I say this yeah, in man, jest. Man. Please don't call me on Monday. No, look, man, it's honestly, pure that, no, but I think we're at the point where we got to question the institutions here and what they're doing yeah. and if they're taking it seriously. And look, I kind of, I get where Ian's coming from. Like I said, I appreciate his honesty in that. So, but, but at the same time, I don't know if that's good enough. Like, I don't know if it's like, well, they told me I can't, I couldn't get a prosecution last time i couldn't go after them for this or hold them accountable not go after but hold them accountable for breaching the law i think you got to keep trying i think you got to try again we got a different dpp now although i mean this guy jesus anyway um (laughs) you know we've 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 seen him in action or as many average hit rate recently (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and uh and that's it i mean do they want to do that but like to me it doesn't matter to me you've got to do it when you're the electoral commissioner you got to do it you got to keep pushing it and fighting for it because I do every day. And you know how many times I get knocked back and how many mm-hmm. times things don't go the way I want. But I know that 
Yeah. We got to we got to keep doing what's right here and protecting our democracy and yeah. reporting on things that people don't like sometimes and that I'll get criticized for, but you keep doing it because it's what's right and you got to keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that often you'll get 82 black pages when you put submit a FOI. So, uh, yeah, maybe a headline at the start and the back page. No, I, I agree. And, look, I'm sure there's there's reasons behind uh, the actions or otherwise of all of the players. But, you know, if they'd done it once or maybe twice, you'd go, okay, well, it's an oversight or whatever. But this is a, this is a serial action or inaction they do every year yeah every year it seems to be it's 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 crazy and then to to see that this other audit said just go after them hold somebody accountable yeah and uh no nothing and then they just kept Mm -hmm. doing it and like what's and they know they can get away with it now so really what's the incentive yeah what's the incentive and yeah i i don't that really troubles me pete for our democracy anyway i get it I absolutely get it. And um, look, as I said, I'm going to keep score on the two major political parties and their various own goals. They're they're kicking so many of them. We've got got to be right onto it. But God, (laughs) let's hope hope someone actually stands out for their positivity in the next few months. Yeah, and and vision and, um, yeah, and and having ideas, solid ideas that are going to work yeah. here in the territory that, where they understand the territory and what's gonna, yeah. what it's going to take. Exactly. Yeah. Chris, there was a uh, gas disruption that uh, has been blamed <laughs> for Monday's massive power, out- uh, power outage yeah. as a review has now been ordered. Yeah, look, we're just getting back into the same doomsday type of issues here yeah. where we're it's doomed. a sharpen your stick sort of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it, well, this is where that came from. Remember the, <laughs> the Utilities Commission reports? Yes. And, and then they were doing stuff on the tarmac there so we couldn't fly out, and then they're telling us the power grid is going to collapse completely yeah. <laughs> within the next three years because this yes. government hasn't done enough over the past eight years now where they were told every year, look, you, you need to do something. The gas stuff's not working. You know, you've yeah. got the deal with E&I and Black Tip, and that's pretty much done. They now have other deals that they've entered into. But the whole thing is that you, you're moving to the renewable energy stuff, the solar power, which is going to provide those turbines at, at, at Channel Point. Yeah. And it just they just haven't done that. They, they, those solar projects are up. They're, they're ready to go, and then just nothing's happened. They're not connected. Maybe they are connected, but they're not moving. They're not generating anything. And it's going to take like so much to fix that. But we we get into that. I mean, they know this, Pete. Like, this is what's crazy. They've known this since they got in government and probably before. I remember there was a big blackout before uh, when the COP, and it seems to be maybe that's like the precursor, the harbinger here to the end of a government that the lights go out completely. Um, for this one, on this occasion, it was 20,000 customers affected in 19 suburbs in Darwin and Palmerston and, and down to Catherine. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah, look, the, the chief minister came out and said that she's ordered a review into the cause of, of Monday's widespread power outage. Uh, and that, that have followed a gas pipeline owner, APA, uh, indicating that a gas supply issue were, quote unquote, an event. They had experienced an mm. event cool. uh, with its gas delivery in the pipeline to the Channel Island power station um, that led to the outage. 
uh, yeah, in the opposition raising those questions about the uh, stability of the energy grid and the NT's energy future and whether or not there's a plan for that. And uh, <laughs> the renewable plan, remember, was the document you were talking about that was completely redacted and nobody's yes. got to see what their renewable <laughs> plan is because, it, because they would have been told you have to upgrade the grid here and you have to do this. And mm. they just haven't done it, Pete. Like the, for years, this has gone on and the Utilities Commission said, you got to do this. So It works keep, for the ostrich to put his head in the sand, so <laughs> yeah. why not so, for us? So, uh, yeah, a Monday evening, uh, yeah, this happens. They've experienced an event with gas delivery to Channel Island Power Station led to the outage. Of course, APA says their on-call technicians worked and well to get it back up. It was out for about two hours. Uh, Lawler saying that the government would launch an investigation. Power and Water saying, you know, basically it happened. Um, it was a localized interruption to gas supply at a few generating units at the Channel Island Power Station. Again, though, you know, how how did they, you know, how did they get let it get to this point? And this is kind mm -hmm. of where this then kind of unfolds here. The government has been forced, we know, to buy gas off Santos and Impex, as well as other suppliers to keep the power station functioning following a major drop of supply with ENI's black tip gas field over the last two years. E&I has the contract until 2034 to provide gas to power and water for that, it, it, part of a $5.5 billion deal uh, that the government has been looking to other gas export plants in Darwin Harbor to provide because they just aren't living up to their end of the bargain. Impacts uh, probably rightfully annoyed with having to supply gas when they have, you know, they're they've got the deal they're looking at and then the NTY, well, hey, can you supply some for us here? And yeah, they want to go home for the day, but they're like, yeah, right. We better stick around late. Bring your jerry cans thing. in. We'll give you a few liters. <laughs> so, um, Lawler told ABC on Tuesday on radio that due to ENI's difficulty supplying gas, the government would continue to access gas quote from a range of suppliers across the Northern territory she added the government was also eyeing using fracked, uh, gas fracked from the Beetaloo Basin to be used at the power station in the future, which had been previously raised um, as a possibility through Empire Energy, who's a partner with Tambourine down there. This is just, you know, it gets to the point. I mean, that's what Eva wants to promote. And it seems, well, hey, let them, you know, we're going to do Beetaloo and we're going to need the gas up here. I think the NT News had a story today with the head of Tambor and saying, well, hey, we told you guys, you know, you're sitting on all this gas and you're having power go out. I don't think that's where we need to go. And we needed to do this eight years ago, Pete. I just get back to that Utilities Commission report from last July saying, this is where it's going. You've got to put in the infrastructure. This is going to take work, but you can do it. But just know it's going to mm -hmm. take a while. We don't have that time. Now. I don't even think they can possibly do it. And part of that was that that these generators out at, uh, at um at Channel Island here are are old. They're going to be decommissioned soon, uh, and there didn't seem to be any plan uh, in place for that. And th this is like for years they knew <laughs> about this. Shock. I can't stress this enough. Um, so Leo Finacchiaro said the latest gas supply issue to Channel Island had demonstrated a significant breakdown in infrastructure management. She said, Labor has been aware of the likelihood of power outages on their watch, yet continues to show they have no plan for the future of our energy security. 
He also pointed to those three solar farms sitting idle and not currently contributing to the power grid. The government, um, as we said, was warned of this impending power system blackouts and complete collapse over the next three years uh, if it did not spend a significant amount of money on storage and better managing the power system to equip it for renewable generation, including solar, uh, amid the planned closure of large gas generators at Channel Island. Renewable and Energies Minister Kate Warden rejected the CLP's claims on Tuesday that the government had no plan for energy security and said the recent outage was not an infrastructure issue. She said, we've invested millions of dollars into approving our grid. Uh, okay. I have to see the receipts on that one. We do have some older power generation infrastructure, but this issue, I mean, a blackout the other day, is not with our infrastructure which we are modernizing and updating every single day. My God, I, I, anyway, Pergy Generation has a very strong plan and they're implementing that plan, she said. She added the government is still monitoring the solar farms before connecting them to the grid to ensure reliability because yeah, they don't want to just jump into this thing. Absolutely not. They'll need at least 25 years worth of monitoring, and by that stage, the warranties will all be shot on the panels, so that's good. Oh, man, this is just, this is really getting bad. And the solution was there years ago when they started talking about the renewable stuff. And okay, it's going to take yeah. longer in the NT to get this done, right? The Utilities Commission basically held their hand and told them step by step how to do this. Here's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. This is the NT. Remember, you're, you're going to have issues here that you didn't, that you wouldn't have anywhere else, but you got to get the right people in. You got to start planning this. You got to start doing it. And they just did not do yeah. it. And now we're, we're three years out from complete collapse. And uh, yeah. this, we're starting to see the effects of that now, the symptoms of what's to come. And the thing is, too, Chris, that I think it's quite rich of the CLP to say, hey, you've got no plan and we told you this and we told you that. But they also were in government two terms ago and they're not without blame in this whole situation as well. Yeah. The CLP, yeah. I mean, yeah, look, I, I don't even remember that coming up as an issue and then um, – you know, till till the power went out that time, and um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah they kind of danced around it, and nothing happened. But um, yeah, look, this is something that's focus on gas with labor and everything. It's just you you go back even further, though. I remember it's something like now. What was it last year? Nineteen of the twenty three years. Now it's like twenty of the last twenty four or something. Where labor and power and, uh, and yeah. Uh, you know, that this stuff should have been looked at a long time ago and take the politics out of any of this stuff, too, is that we live in yeah. the Northern Territory where sun is plentiful. If we can use solar to be powering so our dumb. power, do it. Like, just do it. They should have been working on this years ago, and now it's too late. It's getting to the point yeah. where it's too late. We're just going to, I guess, but what are we going to do when these gas generators at Channel Island um, start to be decommissioned because I guess they're going to try and keep them mm -hmm. going, but it's going to collapse. It's going to collapse, and we're going to have more blackouts all over the place. The stupidity of it is that we, we have two factors that go very well. We have lots of sunlight and energy that we make day in, day out, and we've got lots of space. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not hard to make a solar farm or 50, but yeah, Or the, the largest have one made, in the world, even. Yeah. That's it. The ones that we make sit there unused. So, that's, that's I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe lack it's, of vision. Uh, yeah, that's right. Maybe their theory is they're only allowed to use them once the grid completely capitulates, but by then it's too late. <laughs>
I don't you know. You can imagine it, can't you? Someone will be there at midnight with the plug trying to plug it in. <laughs> trying to get the, <laughs> yeah. Trying to get the power uh, going. And then, yeah, like, and then their only backup is diesel, right? Like, they could still do this. Yeah, they could yeah. still fire them up on diesel. I don't know yep. what they're doing. <laughs> it's just crazy, man. No. It's just, I, there, this has to be an issue in the election. This has to be an election issue. I think it's too late, but I want to hear what both yeah. of them are doing. But I, I couldn't even believe Labor now after knowing for eight years when the Utilities Commission has been sending them these reports annually saying, okay, guys, you're, you're closer yeah. to complete shutdown. What yeah. have you been doing? You got to get on this. And the fact they don't, I mean, there's nothing you can say. There's no excuse for that. And uh, I don't know what the CLP is going to say. Well, we'll just keep running on gas and we'll build new one. <laughs> like, just... Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll run the we'll run gas. We'll use some um, solar when we can, mm-hmm. and when we decommission the other things, we'll just put spit ho- spit hoods over the top of them. So we should be all good. <laughs> yeah, that's that'll good. shut them down. Yeah, that's the whole thing that came up this week. That that where where's this coming from anyway? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, we we know we know about the. Um, we know about the CLP's proclivity to wear to wear hoods to discipline people. So. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. That's one of the best stories I think of CLP policy gone wrong, which was for anyone who doesn't remember was the uh, where they were so fed up with crime that they suggested that uh, some of their people, I guess, put on hoods and 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 discipline with sticks the culprits yeah. of any crime that's going yeah. on, which is, <laughs> rem- yeah. yeah, just brought to mind the KKK with everybody. And uh, it, it, was, it, sure it was supposed did. to be done on the riverbed too. The guy from the Litchfield council said yeah, yeah. there was something involving yeah. a riverbed. I don't know if they said burning cross. I think that's, we're taking it too bad. <laughs> like it sounded I all do, a little. I do recall they mentioned getting ninjas from Singapore to carry out the discipline <laughs> <laughs> as well. That was it. I don't, yeah, I think they did. Say that. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, that we need to bring about the creativity up. I quite like those policies. Not Crazy the actual ideas. things they're doing, but just the concept. Yeah, the fact they, that they're thinking, they need, I guess. I that's it. They need to have one of those um, town hall meetings where they get together and they're right. Right, guys, any idea is a good idea. Just throw them at us. All right, let's do spit hoods. On the river be- riverbed, we'll get ninjas from Singapore, we'll <laughs> and then we'll we'll take the young offenders, we'll take them out to Channel Island, we'll get them on one of these giant hamster wheels, right? And we'll just keep them running, and that'll generate the power. <laughs> There's no energy no. problem here. <laughs> no we'll, idea is we'll too crazy for that the COP. U- we can utilize that youthful energy of those little rapscallions <laughs> doing all those problems, and we'll get them on the hamster wheel. <laughs> anyway, yeah. We yeah. jest. Uh, Chris, the High Court's blocked Glencore from expanding their port facility at the MacArthur River Mine facility. Yeah, Pete. Yeah, this is uh, an ongoing, I mean, a long, drawn-out kind of court process. But, yeah, the High Court has now ruled in favor of native, native title holders ordering the mining giant Glencore uh, needs to halt the expansion of port facilities on their go- go- on the Gulf of Carpentaria, of course, connected to the MacArthur River mine. Now, the ruling found that this dredging project was located in a zone covered by provisions in the Native Title Act that gives MacArthur River area title holders the right to oppose developments 
Uh, it had also directed the NT government to withdraw minerals lease granted in 2013 that allowed the dredging area to be enlarged. Uh, Glencore initially wanted to build this new area to store dredge spoil. I call it since the current spoil area regularly filled with residues and sludge over the last 15 years is now at full capacity. The company said the the lead and zinc must be transported to the Bing Bong loading facility. Thus, a new dredge spoil area is needed to continue operations. But in that was kind of the issues now was the issue that the court found. So lead and zinc deposits were being trucked 120 kilometers to this Bing Bong port, it's called to be exported abroad since the company's mining operations started. So barge vessels must also pass through a regularly dredged shallow navigation channel to get deposits on larger export ships. The high court, however, said that the ordinary meaning of mining, quote, does not encompass the transportation of mined ore to customers. Mm. So that's where, you know, the site is there where you're mining, but then you're doing this other stuff and then trucking it so the new dredge dumping area would be constructed on land that's separate from where mining takes place and would be it would be concerned with the shipment of zinc and lead the high court concluded the high court decision today this is what the nlc chief executive joe martin jart said that the high court decision today really clears the air in terms of understanding that native title holders do have rights rights now established in law and macarthur river mine needs to understand that but we come with an open heart and an open mind, and we want to engage positively with MRM. So Glencore, of course, which owns the mine, uh, yeah, must uh, listen to the concerns of native title holders. Uh, Joe Martin-Jard said um, they had argued that the kind of row between native title holders and Glencore subsidiary Mount Isa Mines, which operates the MacArthur River Mine, started in 2013. After the company applied for a mineral lease to build a new dredging dumping site, um, traditional owners argued about the negative effects on their native title rights, the damage it is causing to sacred sites, and the degradation of local ecosystems. MacArthur River Mine General Manager Mark Furlot said the company acknowledges and respects the high court's ruling. Uh, They will be engaged in discussions with the traditional owners and with the Northern Land Council concerning the land, which is the subject of the decision of the High Court and other matters, Mr. Furlot said. Uh, Yeah, Mark Monaghan, new mining minister, said that the government Mm. would look at options for the MacArthur River Mine now, or I guess that project, that, that side of it. Uh, the territory government also acknowledges and respects the decision of the high court uh, in the Bing Bong loading facility. Monaghan told ABC Glencore will not need to cease its operations. Uh, however, the territory government will continue to work with Glencore and native title holders to ensure the best outcome for all parties in regards to the land, which is subject to the decisions of the high court. Okay. Well, it seems everyone's accepting the decision, which is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know. Sometimes it takes a long time. Uh, I guess this is kind of what happens when lawyers don't lie to <laughs> to their clients <laughs> and to the courts that things maybe get settled. Uh, yeah. And I bring that up about the the Santos Barossa project and the EDO lawyer, which there'll be more on that coming up yes. soon. That hasn't gone away either. I should tell you. Um, yeah. yeah, and there should be something up very soon about where that's at, but more, more okay. to come on that stuff. But, um, mm. yeah, so for this one, I think, yeah, it appears everybody's taking this the right way and they're going to find a, a solution. So that's good. That's very good.
Sticking with mining, Chris, a mining company with NT operations has entered administration uh, amid financial woes. What's happened here? Yeah, this is uh, Elmore, if you're familiar with them. Now, they operate the Pico Magnetite project near Tennant Creek. They've gone into administration after recently reporting it needed about $5 million to sustain its operations. It's clear they did not obtain that. Uh, focuses This company, Elmore, focuses its operations on gold and iron ore mining in the Tennant Creek area. So it's now under KPMG administration after the PICO project fell short of generating the funds needed to keep the company solvent. KPMG were made administrators for the company and eight linked entities. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, there were other mines, I guess, involved that also had issues with uh, market conditions, I guess is really what it is. Uh, yeah, Elmore going into administration, of course, so for the NT will have far-reaching effects and extending beyond the company, of course, negatively affecting investors, employees, and the NT's mining sector generally. The mineral processing company contracts its services to local mining companies in the NT here. The company began commercial production at the Pico plant in 2022 ramping up production to meet rail capacity constraint of 350 tons annually. At the time, the company said it was looking forward to making Pico operations a success through firstly the sales of magnetite and then adding copper, cobalt, and gold, but also using Pico as a stake in the ground to develop a successful mining services company as we add other operations to our portfolio. Things mm -hmm. did not go according to plan, clearly. No, it's coming up more and more. Uh, yes. Mining being one of those sectors, building being another, where we're seeing lots and lots of organisations either go into voluntary administration or completely falling over. So I guess it's a sign of the times, and um, it'll go the other way at some point, but who can hold on in the meantime is the, is yeah. the, the question. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Pete. And I just think about the budget. And uh, I believe we were forecasting like so much more money from mine mining companies in the next yeah. couple of years looking forward. And it just seems to me that you've got one collapsing almost every week now. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, it's not it's not looking good. So um, no, yeah, I don't know. I think my prediction of minus forty billion by twenty thirty is more likely. <laughs> it's starting to look <laughs> that way, man. Yeah, not good. Mm. Not good at anyway. all. So we hope something changes there. Yeah, absolutely. And and just changing tax, but um, on a – it's not even a similar footing, but regarding some sort of finance anyway. Oric has ordered forensic accounting firm uh, to examine Jalalakari Council books. I apologize to elders past and present if I've uh, stuffed up the – pronunciation of that name sounds right pete that, that's what woody's been calling it around the office here this week so yep uh and well, it must yeah, be exactly. right if woody's saying it that way <laughs> yeah well look woody's woody's talked to some people involved here and he's been across this for a while but yeah this week i guess it kind of came out that um that the finances of uh jalalakari council aboriginal corporations so the JCAC, their finances are being examined by order of the Office of the Registrar of Indigenous Corporations. 
After the statutory body brought in an independent accounting firm to forensically audit the books, so uh, the ABC first reported that it happened on Wednesday, which followed a January 19th document seen by uh, Woody at the NT Independent that showed that Registrar Delegate Kevin Vu had authorized uh, some people from the Western Australian-based firm of Rogers Reedy to examine the books of JCAC, which is based in Tennant Creek. Uh, police confirmed in a statement uh, this week that the agency was investigating the corporation, but would not say when the investigation began, why it started, or if anyone had been charged. Oric also did not respond. Well, Oric did not respond to a request for more information, nor did JCAC. So in June last year, we reported the members of that group called on its chair to stand down following serious allegations made against her while unrelated allegations of the theft of more than $1 million from the organization appeared to be the subject of a police investigation involving possible raids of offices, mm. I think, and, and possibly residences. Uh, this petition that we had seen uh, said there had been serious concerns raised by members of the board related to the untrustworthy behavior of the current chair, who had, quote, made a mockery of everything that we hold dear, honesty, respect, and basic human rights, Ward wow. was saying about the chair, uh, called on the directors to vote to remove the chair uh, from her role. Uh, however, yeah, and she did not respond to questions um, put by us at the time. Um, yeah, the document had also showed that Oric, uh, uh, that this, uh, this chair had ceased to be a director on November 30th last year. So, um, yeah, there was... Sources telling us that about $1 million was allegedly transferred to multiple smaller transaction to an employee's personal account and that the employee has since resigned. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't name that employee and we're not, and there's no suggestion that that chair either was involved in that, but it, look, they definitely had issues over here. And, uh, yeah, yeah you got Oric and the police looking into it and now, um, uh, forensic auditor. Uh, looking at the anomalies mm. in the books. Uh, yeah, look, we we seem to be talking about a, a, a group like this every couple of months on here too, Pete. And uh, we have been, yeah. you remember what yep. Jacinta Price said about um, all these kind of councils being uh, looked at yep. uh, holistically and finding what the problems are and what they stem from and finding yep. a way to make this kind of not happen as frequently as it seems to be happening. It's just... Easier for the government, I think, most times to just throw money at it and hope it all goes away and, you know, let them deal with it. Hey, we're helping Indigenous people by doing this. But mm. uh, when when public money gets misspent and misappropriated like this, where you have to bring in this, it, it ends up costing more money, I think, in the end. And what, Exactly. Yeah, right. what, what cost to, to everything here? So, I don't know. I don't know how they fix this, but I, I think that's it. I think we got to start having a realistic look at everything and why this is continuing to occur. Agreed. And when they're done with that, the um, forensic accountants who obviously come from interstate to be in the NT, they might just want to swing by the CLP's office and give them a hand. That, book work. <laughs> that is a great point, Pete. Uh, maybe we can get them to agree to that. Yeah, that. Yeah, we could get a, look at your we could get a discount for him. Hey, so Shane Stone told us that they got nothing to hide. He well, said that go. today on radio. So hey, let the forensic auditors in. Let's see. Let them in. <laughs> let them let them in, my friends.
Yeah. Anyway. Chris, the uh, recreational fishing industry have savaged the government's gillnet policy. Because it was so weird and just unclear, right? Like, yeah, Woody, Woody, this is another Woody story here this week. And uh, I, I got the sense today Woody was getting frustrated and uh, he just wanted to be done with this because these people, as he said, they're not making any sense whatsoever at all about anything. Um, and then, like, it was so, I, I get his frustration with it, right? Because... What has the government actually announced here? Well, we're not really sure. <laughs> they announced something. Uh, statements were made. Comments were made. Comments from other people <laughs> were made. People were talking. Talking about people. Talking about fish, even. It was, there were people in the room. <laughs> it was just it was weird. So the, the, the Lawler government has said, and, and this is a good way. I think the lead kind of sums it up, but... Anyways, it was unusual. The Lawler government has said it will implement, quote, effort limits for this year's commercial barramundi season rather than impose catch quotas. But the fishing guide's peak body said the policy allowed the commercial gillnet fishing industry to operate at higher than average levels in important recreational fishing areas and relied on an honesty system. Right? Uh -oh. So. Yeah, I think it was like Afant or somebody had been calling for, recreational fishers have been calling for this. Um, they wanted to see this kind of quota put in to, to keep yeah. bare monies moving and uh, commercial quota, you can only do so much. But what the government did, they said in a statement that they would introduce interim commercial fishing effort limits. Effort okay. limits in the Roper River, Anson Bay, and the Moyle River catchments for the 2024 fishing season alone. Monaghan did not explain what an effort, effort limit actually was. <laughs> but, yeah, but, um, yeah, luckily we got Woody on the case, and he started looking <laughs> around into what, was, what it was, and he, and he found yeah. that the Australian Fisheries Management Authority describes effort-based quotas as in Titling a fisher to use a certain amount of fishing gear, such as the length of net or number of hooks, depending on the type of fishing and gear used. Now, Monaghan also would not say what the effort quotas would be and the extent okay. of that. But the NT Guided Fishing Industry Association chairman said that the government's approach was unacceptable, adding that it was an ineffective stop map catcher that permits operators to fish and this is where it becomes clear permits operators to fish with the highest amount of gill nets that they have used in any year over the last 10 years without any limits on the total amount of fish that can be caught wow right? so you're thinking that just to, to reiterate and i think i've got it the effort limit it's actually like effort quotas, effort-based quotas, which allows them to use the equipment. That's about the equipment that can be used. Yeah. Right? So it's not actually a fish quota, um, but it's the equipment that can be used. But now the NT Guided Fishing Industry Association is saying that that, that means that the commercial fishers uh, with the high, can use the highest amount of gill nets that they have used in any year over the last 10 years. And no limits on the total amount of fish that can be caught. So, whatever equipment yeah. they used within those ten years that they cost the most fish with, they can use again this year. 
this does nothing wow. to address what they've been calling for in terms of a quota. Um, so, yeah, this is the uh, chairman there is Blaine Simmons, and he said, look, it, it permits the commercial gillnet fishery to operate at higher than average levels in important recreational fishing areas without safeguarding barramundi abundance levels essential for the tourism, recreational, and traditional sectors, he said. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, the management of the limits relies on self-reporting by commercial fishers, an approach that is unenforceable and compromised by financial and operational incentives to under-report. Yeah, look, we know that self-reporting historic historically is a little on the dodgy side. Well, um, look, even so enforced reporting is what we see with <laughs> donations here, and the NTEC <laughs> can't even be done properly. So, <laughs> unenforced. Oh, my God. Yeah, um, look, this is another one. I'm it's just so pleased that effort... Uh, Effort limits didn't come down to what I was picturing, a very unenforceable situation where basically you had government workers out on boats on the harbour and they'd be rolling up to fish that, nah, mate, you put no effort into catching that fish, you put it back. <laughs> That's it. I want to mate, see you how worked hard, hard for trying. that one, you can keep it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like, yeah, it's too bad that like Monaghan got to do that in some um, statement to somebody or something, right? Like it would have been good to like when he just starts using this word and say, do you know what, what are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> like, I wonder if he knows what that actually means. Um, anyway, yeah, look, the, the Amateur Fishermen's Association, of course, half hint, um, uh, they had released a statement calling for urgent weight-based barramundi catch quotas to be introduced for key top catchments, uh, including mm -hmm. daily river and roper, uh, and called on the government to introduce conservative interim catch quotas to ensure the 24 com 2024 commercial catches do not exceed recent average harvest levels in any catchment. There were concerns that commercial fishers were targeting bigger harvests, uh, the uh, chairman there, the chief executive of Afant had said, uh, from important recreational and traditional fishing areas uh, after access changes were announced last year, which FN said meant up to 50% of the commercial barramundi catch was displaced by. We're seeking nothing more than an application of sensible policy, said the Daly River and the Roper River barramundi fisheries are world-class. Abundant stocks must be actively protected, not left to chance. So, uh, yeah, Monaghan said this, and this is, this is the line I was looking for for him. He said, uh, effort limits, quote, have a direct relevance to managing the issue of displaced commercial effort and align with the existing effort-based management of the Bear Monday fishery. Now, I think ChatGPT wrote that for him. <laughs> what he wrote, he did not explain what that was supposed to mean. <laughs> and I'm reading that. I'm like, I'll tell you why, because he didn't know. <laughs> That's an absolutely fact-based line to put after that. He did not explain yeah. what that was supposed to mean. <laughs> and then just to get everybody off the scent, he wrote, free fuel for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and tiny anti-flags as well. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah, free fuel. Uh, Refuel yeah. cards for all fishers who don't complain about the effort-based limits. <laughs> but he will secretly not tell anyone else. He'll pass that without letting anyone know. Yeah, yeah. Any other territories, they won't know, but only fishers. 
It's not a law, but he's going to uh, make a determination about that down the track. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. yeah. Um, um, speaking yeah. of things that live in abundance in the NT, Chris, mm. there is talk, refresh talk, I might add, because it's been going on for at least 20 odd years, about crocodile, crocodile culls with trophy hunting flags as part of a new NT croc management plan. Is it going to happen this time? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, this is going on forever, like you say. I don't know. Um, it, it seems to me, and the, the way that the labor introduced this and the chief minister came out, now this would be something that wouldn't really fall under her portfolio, but she was there, right? And so you got to wonder, mm. well, what's going on there? Um, uh, have they done polling? I was thinking, have they done <laughs> some sort of polling that this is going to be a yeah, popular yeah. kind of pitch? Uh, or scheme, I, I think that they have. Though, I don't know. I mean, I think the reaction's been mixed from what I've heard everywhere, you know, on social media, on our site, on radio. Um, I, you can't really form an opinion on that. If they've done polling that shows it's popular, then maybe it, it is. But, uh, yeah, so they've come out now, and it, it almost seemed like all week they were making announcements that were more campaign-related. It's almost like the campaign's mm -hmm. begun. And so this was an, uh, an unusual one in that sense, but um, they've uh, introduced the new draft 10-year crocodile management plan for public consultation. That is a fact. Now, it was the chief minister who then added in crocodile culling and trophy huntings back on the table, mm. and that they want to hear from territorians now on what exactly they think. Uh, if they want to see crocs called, Eva Lawler said personally she did want to see crocs called, quote, in a safe and sustainable way. Uh, after she said there were estimates of more than 100,000 crocodiles currently in the NT and numbers approaching pre-hunting levels, I do want to see a call. She said, I grew up in the territory. I remember swimming in lots of the billabongs and the waterways across the top end, but there are experts in the field that will provide advice to government around how we manage crocodiles. So she's like taking revenge. She's got revenge yeah, yeah. here. She doesn't want. She's been bring back the billabong. Bill yeah, and they've they've kicked her out. So now she wants back in. <laughs> yeah. She's going to call them. Lawler added she felt the NT had done quote a really good job managing crocodiles quote so far, but when those numbers are a hundred thousand, I think that you probably do need to have a look at what we're doing around that. She said. And we know about the uh, the Wangai Falls croc attack last year. Left a 67-year-old man in hospital with injuries. Um, and, uh, yeah, a lot of them are saying we need to look at those numbers. Now, when the, the NT's croc going program ended in the early 70s, there were an estimated 3,000 crocs. Uh, she said any potential croc safaris or trophy hunting now would have to be discussed with the federal government. As we oh, know, yeah, of course. Right? Yep. Uh, however, the Commonwealth has repeatedly nixed the idea. And I remember, I got to remember what, yeah, I think it was like 2015, maybe it was 2016. Giles started talking about this. He did. Giles yep. was saying it was a good thing to do. Um, but the Commonwealth knocked that back at the time. She said, but this is what this discussion paper is out there for to advise those discussions and ideas. The report asked the public if they support Aboriginal at croc hunting enterprises, which it mm -hmm. suggests could deliver real benefits to Aboriginal communities. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's an issue that, yeah, I think you guys 
probably broad support from a lot of territorians. Yeah, honest. yeah. And, uh, and that's why I think they're bringing this up. As, as if the feds would have any bloody idea anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they'll still get involved. Um, we should you know, take about... Uh, we yeah. should take a couple of hundred crocs down to Canberra and stick them in Lake Burley Griffin and see how much they like them. <laughs> yeah, that's an idea. Facing south, facing north, whatever it was. Yeah, <laughs> bring that up. Um, yeah, look, opponents of the of a croc call previously claimed it would not lead to safer waterways and could give people a false sense of security. I don't think we'd all be running out right away uh, up in the middle of the We'd still be croc wise. Yeah. Uh, the new uh, draft croc management plan states it aims to find a balance between sustainable management of crocs and public safety. Anyway, they've they've got some things here that they brought in here that people can go and read. Uh, the government estimated, look, the other part of it is the crocodile industry, of course, which and this was weird. The, the government said it was worth, quote, at least $25 million. <laughs> How do you not know what the, yeah. what the croc industry, like, you know, with the egg harvesting and all that sort of stuff? Expected to grow, they said, with up to 90,000 croc eggs currently harvested from the wild each year. It also said crocs are, quote, a significant draw card for the NT's tourism industry. Yeah, 3,000 crocs removed from the wild over the past 12 years. Uh, we know the population is up to 100,000. What this consultation work will tell us, Lawler said, is your thoughts on how we can go about croc management, including croc culling in a safe, sustainable way. You can check out the story. we got a link at the end here. You can provide comments till the end of February or until February okay. 28th this year. Nice. Yeah. I know that uh, in previous episodes when there was a lot of talk about the uh, Fanny Bay race course and the turf club, there was a comment made regarding the horses. Do we know if the crocs have been consulted in this situation? I'm going to blame the horses. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. I think the crocs, I think it is their fault. <laughs> They're an apex predator, and uh, we don't need that many of them around here. Sorry, but we don't. We just don't. And so, no. yeah, it probably is time to look at that. I think that, look, the safari idea has always sounded pretty good, and I think, like I said, most territorians would back that up and think, and yeah. look, and if that's bringing, you know, much-needed economic activity to remote areas where indigenous people can take part in that and lead those yeah. expeditions, that would be a great experience for, for a lot of tourists that we'd get coming Correct. over here. That was I know the first this, thing I thought of when I heard about yeah. this. I thought, oh, how good would it be for those remote indigenous communities who have been involved in these practices for yeah. thousands yeah. and thousands of years to yeah. take people from Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth and whatever – well, and overseas, obviously. Yeah, or London and, and you know, Spain and give them a, a semi-traditional experience. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. And uh, I think they should, I, you know, I think there's this idea, this whole trophy hunting thing that it becomes where it gets crazy and, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, you're slaughtering animals for no reason. Yeah. But look, we, we've got abundance. They're not, a, they're not an endangered species. I think maybe at one point they were, but they sure as hell aren't. Well, if they've the gone from 3,000 to 100,000, they're doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. And this, this maybe is they're getting the um, realistic. Maybe they're getting the baby bonus. That's why they're uh, they're uh, increasing <laughs> the population numbers by that much. <laughs> yeah, but the government's taking out of one department anyway. Um, yeah, look, I, I I think that we'll see what happens, and uh, I don't know. Should, look, the, the public can provide comments until February twenty eighth. Now I don't know what they're going to do about that. You're what um, 
six months out to the election then. So do you, are, is she going to bring this up again and say, look, Territorians say they want this and we're, we're going to introduce the safaris if we're elected? Well, I'm pretty sure that the CLP will be on that and any independents mm. um, would too. And that's, that's you know, we keep forgetting about that. Um, independence is going to be interesting to watch at this next election. Correct. How that all goes down. So yeah. we'll see. Just on that, if they're going to uh, yeah. get this through, as you said, the feds are going to need to rubber stamp it or agree to it. So don't send some dumbass proposal down to them with fifteen people who've responded. It's going to have to be a, a, a you know an overwhelmingly positive yeah. display and presentation. Don't disgrace us when approaching the feds about yeah. this. Who've got plenty to do on, on their own account. Give them an overwhelming presentation so they can't say anything but yes. Yeah. And how many do you think that would take? How many public servants do you think that would take? <laughs> to run it or to to fill to out the good. forms <laughs> and to do it well and to get down there? I just don't know. I mean, this is a whole of government approach, then really. Uh, yeah, pretty. But much. yeah, look, they they do they do, and they don't outsource this too either, right? Like that exactly. could be something I would see exactly that they outsource this. Yeah, you could do such. I mean, we talk about this all the time, but you could do such a powerful sort of video series on why this needs to be done. And, you know, you wouldn't even need to send down your petitions of the eight people that sign it. You could yeah. you could do so much, but don't embarrass us with this, you know. This has <laughs> got to work because I don't – look, I'm sure there's some, you know, greenies and so forth who disagree with this because basically their, um, their disposition is to be outraged about everything, which is – that's fine. But this is something that I would say – more than 51% of people would agree with. Mm. So get it through. Get it through. Stop bloody talking about it. It's been more than 20 years. Mm. And, you know, we saw that thing be 10 years ago now where there was that lagoon they found with dozens and dozens of dead crocodiles who'd bloody boiled to death because there was no food for them and they were all, you know, living in Mm. bad conditions because there's too many of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Pete. Anyway, let's see, right. let's see where they move with us. Let's do that, Chris. Please just hold for me there. And now it's time for the job files. Thanks to no one in particular. Yes, addressing the job files for this week, Chris. That's F I L E S. <laughs> in case you wondered, <laughs> I had to search deep into the files this week. Now you know I have a proclivity for marketing and marketing managers' positions. And so this week, we're headed to the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, who have a role for a communications and marketing manager. Why did I select this role? Well, because I saw about six other roles for government-based marketing managers, one at Darwin City Council, and the rest were within the government itself. What I found interesting was nobody was offering less than $130,000 a year. Some more than that, but nobody less. But the poor old museum and art gallery of the NT, they're going to have to make do with a marketing manager who's going to agree to work on the paltry sum of $110,000 a year. So, you know, if if you pay peanuts, (laughs) you know what you get. Now, about the opportunity, you can join the museum and art gallery of the NT, Magant, as its shortened name is, <laughs> as our new communications and marketing manager, exclamation mark. Based in Darwin, Northern Territory, this position will be responsible for the delivery of communications 
and marketing across Magant and the <laughs> development and implementation of marketing and communication strategies. Question for Magant, does that mean there's been no marketing and communication strategies thus far? <laughs> or are we just wiping the last person's hard work and starting afresh? Yeah, yeah. A lot of questions there, Pete, that I mm. have. I know that they've had some financial issues and stuff. Uh, yep. So maybe that's why. But yeah, the 110 for marketing manager. You know, once mm. you start throwing manager in there in an NT public service role. That's right. You're looking at more than that. Uh, yeah. Like, is that an idea? And then did they have somebody in mind and they're thinking, yeah, we're going to make it low, but it's somebody local. We're going to promote them or yeah, maybe. somebody from within. Maybe because I don't someone. think you're going to get a lot of look-ins from anyone down south looking to relocate for that. I don't, I don't know. Um, no, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, no. I just and just... I know that they've had issues in the past here with stuff and um, yeah. budgets have blown out and yeah. Anyway, that's uh, I think they do great stuff though. I mean, I think we do have a good glam industry here. That's what the insiders call it, you know. Glam, glam. Oh, glam. glam. Right. Yeah, you know, like uh, okay. what is it? Uh, galleries, libraries, arts, museums. Oh, the glam right. industry. Wow. I was picturing um, a float down Oxford Street on the Mardi Gras day when you said glam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then when you got libraries in there and things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the museum and art gallery, look, I think, yeah, it's it's pretty good. I think what we have here is actually really good. And I've yeah, I agree. I've been down there myself in a while. But, um, yeah, maybe I'm waiting for the right marketing approach to draw me back down. And I do, but I will get back down. We haven't taken the little girl there for a little while yet. but uh, Yeah, the museum yeah. is great to go and see yeah. the bombing of Darwin display and all that sort of stuff. It's it's yeah. quite amazing. Um, look, if you, if you want this role, not you, Chris, but just in general, uh, <laughs> you need to have a strong attention to detail, a passion for engaging audiences, both in person and in the digital space. So that's really good news. You won't need to use a pen and paper for this role. <laughs> a knack for yeah. developing relationships with internal and external stakeholders and a capacity, just a capacity, to meet deadlines in a fast-paced work environment. Now, no offense, Magant, but I wouldn't have thought of the museum industry as being fast-paced. That's just my take on it. I could I'm be telling you, the glam industry of which the museums are part. Yes. Fast-paced. Glamorous mm. stuff. True that. Uh, the job is open until March the 17th, so a couple of weeks to get in there, and there is no person's name. There is no... Uh, direct contact details, but you can apply to a website. I'm not going to read it out because it's particularly long. Uh, (laughs) Note to self, uh, whoever wrote this ad, next time there's a little website called Bitly that you can use for that, and you can shorten (laughs) that URL down a treat. So I'd be recommending that for future job uh, job advertisements. Yes. Anyway, Chris, yeah, apparently the price of labor is going down in the NT. (laughs) Yeah, that is the takeaway from that. Yeah, yeah, good. Good to Uh, see. We might see the same job next week. It'll be 140K. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so. so. (laughs) All right, Chris, well, we've got um, uh, the government and the opposition and all the political parties about to hit Parliament in the next week or so. So I'm looking forward to watching a bit of a boxing match between them. 
and let's see how far to the bottom of the barrel we can get. Uh, yeah, it'll be down there. And yeah, Pete, we've been checking into some other things. We're going to have some real interesting stuff ahead of that, ahead of the sittings for sittings right. on Tuesday. And yep. um, yeah, and then we'll see how that plays out. And we'll be talking about it what next week. And next weekend, we'll get into a lot of detail about I look forward to it. We'll have some craziness. fun. Take the yeah. mickey out of them. Hopefully they say some really stupid things. <laughs> Absolutely, Pete. All right, mate. I'll catch you next week. Great. Sounds good. We'll see you then. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent. Weekends with Walshy back again next week on the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. In the meantime, have a great week and we'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. For more episodes, go to all your favorite podcasting platforms or head to territorystory.com.